My name is Bob, and it's my privilege today to read to you from God's holy word. The scripture today is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you, so good to be with you. Missed being with you last week. I was under the weather and it is a privilege and a joy to be back with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is my uh, honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you in this morning. Well, judging from the bulletin, if you had, to ta- if you had an opportunity to take a look uh, at it, and the fact that I'm up here preaching right now, you may have surmised that our order of service is just a little bit different today, and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is that from our inception as a church, we've been blessed to have several different people who were able to lead worship. And for a host of reasons, we landed on a Sunday where we didn't have anybody that was available uh, to lead. And so uh, we've been unusually blessed as a church that way. But we, we find ourselves in this moment where we didn't have someone to lead and we were trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with this particular Sunday? And in God's providence... He led us to this particular text. So I was sharing this week uh, with somebody the fact that we didn't have a worship leader for today. And they said, well, why don't you just get up and lead a few songs? And I said, well, because if you've ever actually heard me do that, you would realize that that is not my gifting. I remember very early on, um, I was actually interning at my father-in-law's church. He's now my father-in-law at the time. He was just my girlfriend's dad, but I was interning at his church. And I remember he came up to me. It was the Sunday before Christmas. It was a full house. It was as full as that church got at any given point in the year. And he came up to me about 10 minutes before this service, and he said, hey, our normal song leader called in. He's unable to get here today. Our backup guy isn't here. He's out of town on vacation. And our guy who occasionally leads songs for us was wasn't able to make it in, are you able to step in and lead a few songs? Now, this is a more traditional church with a classic kind of song leader position, and I said, no, I'm not able to fill in. He said, well, we have to have you fill in, so go ahead and get ready to do that. You're the intern. So I remember going and looking at the song list and opening up the hymn book and finding the songs that were listed for that particular Sunday. The first song we were going to sing is Joy to the World, and I thought, okay, good. I know this one. This is familiar. I can fake my way through it. And so I stood up behind the pulpit. I welcomed everybody. I told them where to turn in their song book, and right then the pianist came in playing one tempo and speed, and the organist came in playing an entirely different tempo and speed, potentially a different song. And so now I'm up here freaking out, and as the music began, I just began waving my hands. Could not find the beat to save my life. And as I'm standing there in my flop sweat, worried about what people are thinking, I look to the back of the room, I see an elderly gentleman who was a deacon at the church, and he just stood there doing this motion. Just calm down. 
just calm down. So I stopped the music. We started again. I let everybody start singing. And then when I felt comfortable, I came in slowly waving my arms. But that was the first and last time that I have led music in a church. Because there's that old saying that if, you, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But there's a lesser known corollary, which is if you, if you flop really badly... Just avoid it at all costs and find something else to do. And so that's what we're doing today. But here's, here's the lesson from all that. All of that serves as a reminder of this. The worship of God is not dependent on one person. It is not dependent on one particular element of a worship service. And so as a church, we want to be responsive to steward the gifts and the abilities of the people that God provides. And likewise, when we don't happen to have one of those elements, we don't want to be distracted because we understand that the worship of God is not something that we do exclusively through song. And so we want to take this as an opportunity to worship in other ways. And in the providence of God, through really no design of our own, we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is all about the role of prayer in the life of the church. So what we're going to do in this morning is study the call to prayer through the lens of this text, and instead of just talking about it, we're actually going to put it into practice. So this will be a bit of a different service for us. If you're visiting for us, this is a very different kind of service for us, but we hope it'll be an encouragement and a blessing um, to you this morning. So as we pick up in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy. He's giving instruction on how it is that Timothy is to pastor the church in Ephesus. All kinds of error had begun to creep into the church. There were false teachers who were trying to twist the law to, to formulate their own various theologies, and it was creating all kinds of division and destruction within the church. The process of worship in the church had begun to be undermined altogether. And so here Paul writes to Timothy and says, here's what I want you to do as you correct these people. Here's what the church body ought to do when we gather together. And so these people who are misusing the law and disrupting the proper worship of God, Paul wants to set the record straight with them here on everything from the way that we approach prayer to the role of men and women in the church, which we'll address at length next week, to the qualifications of elders and deacons that we find in chapter 3. But I want you to notice the interesting way that Paul begins. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So he begins by saying this, first of all, then, he's referencing back to chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul had charged Timothy to correct the false doctrine, and Paul says, here's the place you need to begin correcting the false doctrine. You need to begin with prayer, and he actually says, I'm urging you to do this. It's that idea of pleading or begging. He's saying, I need you to understand the importance of what it is to pray when the people of God gather together. And we look at that, and immediately our response is, well, this is the least surprising thing I've ever heard. Christians are supposed to pray when they get together. And the truth is, there really is nothing surprising about that instruction by itself, but I want you to notice the very last phrase he uses, when you gather, pray for all people. Now, remember the context of what it is that that Paul is addressing in this passage. He's addressing people who had twisted the law to formulate their own doctrines and their own theologies. And in particular, it's apparent that these particular people in the church believed they only had a divine responsibility to pray for certain people, namely those who agreed with them. 
They had formulated a theology that said, I don't need to pray for government officials that I disagree with, and I don't need to pray for so-called brothers that I disagree with, and I don't need to pray for the lost who are outside of these walls. The only ones I'm going to pray for are people who are just like me. I'm only going to pray for people who deserve my prayer. And Paul writes saying, no, that is not the approach of the Christian. Paul says, don't just pray for the people who you believe to be right or those who agree with you or those who vote like you or those who think like you. Pray for all people. Pray for those you agree with and pray for those you disagree with. Pray for the legalists and pray for those who indulge in sin. And notice the specific verbiage that Paul uses because even the language he uses is instructive. He says, here's how I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for them in supplication which is specific requests on their behalf. He says, I want you to pray with them, extend prayers for them. And anytime you see that general word prayers, he's talking about the intimate conversation that you have with God. He says, I want you to have intercessions on their behalf. And intercessions in this context means compassionate arbitration on behalf of somebody else. And finally, he says, I want you to extend thanksgivings on their behalf, that you are actually praising God for his goodness in those people's lives, and in fact, even praising God for them. And here's why all of that is so fascinating. To pray like this necessitates the engagement of the heart and the mind and the will. It necessitates the engagement of the whole being. It, doesn't, it does not allow you to simply pray in some sort of vain manner. It actually requires that you engage every part of your being in praying for all people. It necessitates that you actually know people. Or that at the very least, you know enough about them to pray for them. It requires that you have a compassionate attitude that desires to intercede for their needs. It requires that you view them in the same way that God does, where you have a love for them simply because they are designed in the image of God and that you love them to the extent that you can even give thanks for them. See, Paul here is not pressing us to just pray with empty minds and vain platitudes. He will not allow prayer to simply be another box on the checklist of your Christian life. It is not simply fulfilling the basic requirement of Christianity to bow your head at one particular moment and raise it again at another. He will not allow us to be satisfied with that. Instead, the kind of prayer that Paul encourages us towards actually reflects the heart of our Father. It reflects the love and the compassion of a creator and sustainer, a God who cares for and loves and hears his people that there is a God-given love and compassion that ought to come through in our prayers. And this is consistent with the experience of Paul. Remember what we've talked about for the last couple of weeks here. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to the law, he was perfect, blameless. He was zealous for the cause of God. He was He was a faithful follower of the rabbinic tradition. And here upon his conversion, as we talked about for the last two weeks, Paul actually becomes a missionary to the Gentiles. He became a missionary to the very people that the Hebrews hated more than anyone else. 
He didn't just go to the Jews. He didn't just go to the followers of the law. He didn't just go to those who had converted to Judaism. No, he went to people who were entirely different from him, to those who had nothing in common with them, to to those who had nothing to offer him. And he pours out his life in service and in ministry to them. Paul actually cites this in verse 7. He says, for this, he's talking there about the gospel, the mediation of Christ, the salvation that comes only from God. He says, I was appointed to this as a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In other words, he's saying, here's what I'm not lying about. God himself called me to care for people who are wholly different than me people who are completely unlike me, people who have nothing to offer me, and I'm doing it because I have a love for them that is born of the love that God has for me. And so Paul spent the remainder of his life witnessing to and caring for and pastoring Gentiles. Paul had put his money where his mouth was, And he's not going to tell us to do something that he himself was not already doing. So we read this instruction, and immediately our tendency might to be to to ignore what's given here because we're tempted to think that there's nothing actually to apply. Maybe you can't put a finger on a particular group of people towards whom you have animosity. But Paul is not satisfied to leave this conversation in the theoretical. And look where he points his finger. I want you to pray, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And immediately all of God's people said, now why in the world did he have to go there? Why does he have to start talking about politics? Couldn't he leave politics and religion apart? Couldn't he keep these things separate? Everybody knows that's what you're supposed to do. It's as if Paul wanted to transcend time and put a thumb in the sore spot of our deepest feelings. And if Paul is saying that praying for those who are in a high position, governmental leaders and authorities, was important for the church in Ephesus, I'd imagine he would likewise say that it's important for us today in Heartland, Wisconsin. Because in a culture that is highly politicized, nothing reveals our bias like being called to pray for members of the opposing party, specifically leaders. There's something about it that grates on us. It reveals our deepest biases and prejudices. It reveals our lack of understanding about God. It reveals our lack of belief in what it is that prayer accomplishes. There's an old saying that you've heard us reference uh, uh, frequently. I believe Tim Keller was the first to say it, and he said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And we might amend that idea a bit by saying, if you only pray for people who believe exactly like you do, you may be praying to an idealized version of yourself. See, when we pray to God for those who are in high positions, for those who are in leadership, for those who are in authority, whether we agree with them or not, it reminds us of the fact that it is God who is our real and first authority. That the heart of the king sits in his hand that it is he who appoints and removes leaders for his own goodwill. 
But when we only pray for those with whom we agree, it treats God as if he is somehow subservient or dependent on the whims of a political system. As if somehow he is incapable or impotent to intervene. And so Paul says we are not called to pray only for those with whom we agree, but to pray for all those who are in authority. This is part of the reason why if you've been around Disciples Church for any length of time, you have heard us on a regular basis pray for our leaders. We prayed for President Trump and Vice President Pence. We prayed for President Biden and Vice President Harris. We've prayed for Senators Johnson and Baldwin. We've prayed for Governor Evers and Representative Voss. Last week you heard us name by name the seven justices of the state Supreme Court. And I want you to notice the motivation of the prayer and the instruction that's given here. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He's saying the hopeful outcome of all of this prayer for our leaders is that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, one that ushers us into godly and dignified living. And when he says godly and dignified, if you look at that language, every time Paul uses it in the New Testament, he's talking there not only about the internal attitude of the heart, but the perception that outsiders have of believers. In other words, the way that we interact in our political conversation, thought, and prayer is actually revealing of what we believe about our God. It is a testament to those outside of the church, those who do not know Jesus Christ, of the sort of attitude we are called to have in the hopes that in seeing the regard and the respect and the genuine prayer of the hearts that are offered for those in leadership, people might actually be turned on to the gospel. Who are these people that pray for leaders, even those they disagree with? But when we read the instruction that we're to pray in order that we may live peaceably and quietly, this is typically where we get turned around in our thinking. See, we have a tendency to think that our ability to lead a peaceful and quiet and God-honoring life is dependent on whomever is in the White House or whichever party is in control of Congress. But again, remember the context. Paul is writing here in the mid-AD 60s. Regardless of exactly when it is written, Nero is the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time. And if you remember Nero, he was no friend of Christians. This is a man who blamed all of the problems of the empire on the Christians. This is a man who had Christians murdered. This is a man who had Christians dipped in tar and lit on fire to light his parties outside of his estate. And Paul says, I want you to pray for this man. You can imagine how hard this must have been for the Ephesian church to hear. We're to pray for him. And not just pray for his downfall, we're actually to pray for his salvation. You can imagine the way that it struck their hearts to hear this instruction. You can feel it, if we're honest. We can feel it inside of us. 
If ever there was a time in the course of Christian history where Christians could have been dubious about the effects of their prayer for their governmental overlords, it was here. And still, in this particular moment, Paul urges, begs, implores them to pray. Why? Because Paul is suggesting that God actually hears and answers those prayers. So a pastor by the name of John Piper said it this way. He said, if you want your prayers to do the most good for the greatest number of people, be sure to include in your prayers those persons whose decisions create the conditions in which the purpose of the gospel prospers. Let me repeat that. If you want your prayers to do the most good for the greatest number of people, be sure to include in your prayers those persons whose decisions create the conditions in which the purposes of the gospel prosper. So imagine, brothers and sisters, if we took the time that we typically spend complaining about our governmental officials and engaging in political diatribes and arguments on social media, and imagine if we devoted that to prayer for those officials. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians have to disengage from the political process. By, by no means am I saying that. I'm not suggesting that elections don't matter or that we can't engage with political news or ideas or that we should abdicate our responsibility to work within the political and governmental arena. No, we have a unique opportunity to engage in our political system, and we need to use that responsibility. But what I'm suggesting is that our hope for a peaceful and quiet life does not rest on whomever resides in Washington or Madison. It resides in him who is in heaven. So how do we actually find that confident hope through prayer? Because that's typically what evades us, doesn't it? That's the thing that is so hard for us. Well, the church father, Augustine, once said in a letter that in order to properly pray, you must first become a certain kind of person. And here's how he defined that person. He says, you must first account yourself desolate in this world. However great the prosperity of your lot may be. Now, here's what that actually means. He's saying, regardless of what you have in your life, regardless of how good things are, regardless of how much money you have in the bank or how good your health is or how well your family is doing, regardless of anything that you could put your finger on in your life that is revealing that things are actually going well for you, in order to pray properly, you have to consider yourself desolate. In other words, your reliance cannot be in anything else in this world. It can't be in how well life is going or how your family's doing or how you're progressing at your job or whether or not you're enjoying your retirement. Your hope and your joy and your satisfaction cannot be in those things. In fact, you have to consider yourself desolate of those things. You have to be in a mindset to say, God, without you, I have nothing. Without you, I have no hope. Without you, I have no confidence. Without you, I have no joy. Without you, I have no peace. And in so doing, when you come into prayer with that attitude, the desires of your heart begin to be reordered. The things that you find valuable and the priorities that you have in your life begin to properly orient themselves before God. So here's what that means practically. 
to the extent that you are anxious or worried or fearful or scared about the state of the country or the state of the world, Paul's answer is to pray for those who are in high positions so that the affections and hopes of your heart would be rightly aligned under God who has true, eternal authority and power. In so doing, you are not only entrusting those leaders to God's direction and potentially even correction, but you are entrusting your own lot and your own heart to the only one who can responsibly handle it, to the only one who will not disappoint and will not let you down. So he continues then in verse 3. He says, this is good when we do this, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there's something very convicting in Paul's line of argument here, and I don't want you to miss it. Verses 3 and 4 are actually bridge verses that connect verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. And here's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying what ought to drive our prayer for all people is the realization that God is pleased by those prayers and, in fact, desires all people to be saved. In other words, your prayer is not just an intellectual exercise, but it draws on the new affections that are given to you by the Holy Spirit. That the only way to properly pray for all people is to, is to have the heart of God as you think about your prayer, that your prayer is to be informed by the gospel. And I wonder if we share in that evangelistic desire that Paul expresses. I wonder if we actually believe what he says about God here. That there is, in a very real sense, a desire on God's behalf that all people know him. Realizing, of course, that not all people do know him or will know him. Realizing that salvation rests entirely in his hands. That there is a desire, a heartfelt expression on behalf of God that all know him. In our prayers, brothers and sisters, is our hope that all people would be saved, even as we trust in God's Spirit to work and to move in the lives of those whom He calls. And here's the diagnostic for whether or not we believe it. Are there those people in your life, individually or collectively, who you just can't pray for? where when given the opportunity or when they come to mind, everything in you fights the urge to take them before your Father, either because of something they may have done to you or an attitude about them that you may hold or a belief about a particular people group or individual. Are there those in your life for whom you could not ask God's blessing or even their salvation because you're so blinded by disdain. There's an opportunity there to repent and to begin to share in the heart of Christ for those who don't know him. Now, Paul's going to lay out for us 
why he can make the claim that he did in verse 4, that God loves these people. And here's what he says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, it's very possible that this statement that we find in verse 5 is, is actually an early Christian creed. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, the man Christ Jesus. Because we see in that statement the roots of the Shema in the Old Testament. That phrase, for there is one God, is pulled from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is known as the Shema. It's something that any faithful Jew would have spoken upon waking up in the morning. And here's what that passage says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The idea that God is one is something that we take for granted in a modern Western culture. Even with as much irreligion as we experience and see all around us, there is general agreement among people that if there is a God, there's only one of him. The idea of a multitude of gods is something that you typically don't find very often within Western culture, but here's ultimately why that is important. I came across a story from an old pastor who described a trip that he had taken to Hong Kong, and upon arriving in Hong Kong, he said he walked into his hotel room, and there was a calendar sitting there, and each month of the calendar was represented by one of the gods that the local people in Hong Kong prayed to for their blessings. So, for example, on one page, there was a picture of a fertility god, and so if you wanted to be blessed with many children, you would make sure that you offered up many prayers and made sacrifices to this particular fertility god. And on another page, there was the god of business, and if you wanted to be blessed in your work or with, uh, with, with your particular occupation, you would make sacrifices and obeisance to that particular god. But he pointed out that for the people in Hong Kong, they had to be very careful that in worshiping one god, they did not offend another god. Because you didn't want to make the god of fertility happy and have six children and make the god of business upset and lose your job. That doesn't work out well for you. And so people had to constantly be balancing in their lives how their prayers were being extended and how much they were loving this particular God versus that other particular God. But the reality of this statement here, even for us in a Western context, means this. It means that the reality is that there is one God that the God who is in control of one element and one aspect of your life is actually in charge of every element and every aspect of your life, which is incredibly comforting. Because what it means is that even to the extent that you are unaware of issues or needs or or are desperately uh, in need of some particular blessing in your life, your God knows that already. To the extent that you are aware or unaware of what it is that you need, your God is aware. that this is the God in whom we live and move and have our being, according to Acts 17. And it means that we can focus all of our attention and all of our worship on him. But then Paul makes this corollary. He says, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he's saying, now there is only one God, but there is also only one possible means of accessing God. And that is through his mediator, his son, Christ Jesus. See, we desperately needed a mediator. We needed a go-between. We needed an intercessor. We needed someone who could adequately represent God and adequately represent man. Now, who in the world could possibly do that? 
The chasm between God and his creation after the fall was so vast that no man could possibly have assumed that role. And so William Barclay, one particular theologian, references Paul's statement here, and he says Paul probably has in mind the idea of a first century mediator in Athens, which was the idea that once in your life you could be called upon to become a mediator for two other parties. It could only happen once in your life, and it was kind of like jury duty. If you were called upon to do it, you had to fulfill your duty. Both parties then had to agree that you were representing them fairly, and your responsibility as a mediator was to bring those two parties to the table and make peace regardless of what the cost was to you. Now imagine if Paul had actually observed this practice play out and here he uses this idea of Jesus as a mediator. Imagine what that actually represents for us. That Jesus came as the perfect mediator, perfectly representing the needs of man before God and the demands of God before man. That he came to become that ransom, to bridge the gap, to create reconciliation and relationship where there had previously only been brokenness. And that he did it on a cosmic scale. It's what we talked about in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it said, for even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in giving his life as a ransom, Jesus accomplished all that was necessary for the reconciliation of these two irreconcilable parties. Now, here's why all of this matters to prayer, because by laying out this line of thought, Paul is asking the reader implicitly, do you believe that Jesus actually gave himself as a ransom for all? Do you actually believe that? Because if you do, your heart ought to burn with a desire to see all come to know him. And that burning is to be fueled by the realization that Christ first did this in you. That to paraphrase the words of one great old minister, yes, Christ died for you as a mediator, but he also then lives for you as a mediator. That Jesus' presence at the right hand of the Father is a guarantee of his acceptance of you. That when you feel least capable or least worthy of coming before the Lord in prayer, you can press through in confidence because Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God and declares you holy, godly, righteous, accepted, that he is thrilled to hear your prayers and he is thrilled to intercede on your behalf. It's that idea that in that moment where you, where you fail and sin, that same old besetting sin for the hundredth or the thousandth or the ten thousandth time, and you sit there in your shame and go, I can't even go to God because I'm so embarrassed. Jesus in that moment is sitting at the right hand of the Father going, come here. You are just as close to the Father now as I am. Think about that. That even in our moment of deepest doubt and trial, we are no further from God than Jesus Christ is at his right hand because he is our mediator. And that in his goodness, he chooses to use our prayers, no matter how feeble or ignorant, as a means to accomplish his goodwill to draw more people to himself. 
So we get invited to pray for all people because in doing so, we are extending the love that we've been shown. We get to pray for all people because we're joining in on the heart of the Father for those who do not know him. And to the extent that we refuse to pray for some, we are acting as though God likewise couldn't possibly love them. You see, our prayers reveal our theology. They reveal what we actually believe about God. They reveal where our theology is healthy and right, and they reveal where our theology is weak and lacking. So how does this end? Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He ends by saying specifically to men, and the word that he uses there is not men in the broad sense referring to humanity. It is specifically a reference to men. It comes from the Greek word andros. It's talking about male individuals here. And he says they are to pray without quarreling or anger. Now, here's why I think this is included here. I don't think this is included as a prohibition on women praying in the gathering of the church, but I think it's included because the interaction of, this men, of, the, of the men in this congregation had been so marked by division by hatred and incompatibility, by quarreling and infighting, that they had not actually engaged in praying with or for one another. See, the truth is that there is little that has the ability to heal broken relationships like praying with or for those people. It is hard to hold anger in our hearts when we are able to genuinely pray for and lift up somebody before God. It reorders our affections. It changes our priorities. It gives us the heart of the Father toward other people. So we're going to do just that. We're going to spend the remainder of our service together praying. We're going to pray together to God through a congregational prayer and a response to prayer. We're going to pray silently for a couple minutes, and then we're actually going to break up and pray with one another, which for some of you will be great and encouraging, and for some of you will be the most uncomfortable thing that you have done in a long time, and that's okay. But we want to be faithful to listen to and heed the instruction of the Word. So would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, We come before you in the confidence that we're heard, not because we're in this building, not because we phrase our prayers in a particular way, but confident because we have a mediator, an intercessor, Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand. Confident because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, praying for us with groanings too deep for words confident because you love to hear the prayers and the cries of your children, confident because you say that when we pray, you hear us. And so, God, I pray that as we spend the remainder of our time together this morning in prayer, I pray that our hearts would be so turned towards one another and towards those outside of this building that don't know you, that we would begin to show the affection and the love of your heart to them. I pray, God, that our actions and our behaviors and our speech as we think about and talk about and pray for authorities 
would be one that indicates to an outside world that our hope is not here. It is not in an earthly government. It is not even in a country for which we're incredibly thankful. But it is in our salvation that comes from you and from you alone. So God, I pray that our hearts would resonate with the instruction that we've seen this morning. And I pray, God, that we would respond in kind to be those who depend on you in prayer. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.